Discuss what you could do in different places if a bomb explodes. Dum, 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 we must obey dum, the civil dum, defense worker. Dum, dum, can cover. There was a turtle by the name of Bert. And Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He ducked and covered. We've got a great weapon on our side, and that is freedom. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you duck and cover. I have a feeling that there's some kind of problem, but I don't know exactly what it is. And then all of a sudden, Osama bin Laden shows up, and and I'm scared. In the same way, there would be fear if I just saw a tiger, turned around and saw a tiger or a lion that was. You know that I thought was about to attack me, but then it turns out that it's you know a stuffed animal or something like that. And you know when Osama then tells me that he wants to help, then you know I decide to help him out too. So I help him by shaving off his beard, and we take off his turban, and we we go shopping, and we go to Kmart. And so we're walking through Kmart with the shopping cart, and uh, we get in line and come up to the checkout, and Osama offers to pay for me. And he pulls out his credit card, but then I look at his credit card and I remember it's it, it was this blue visa, and and at the bottom you know it said Osama bin Laden, and so I realized that that's a really bad idea to to try to pay with that card. So I tell him that I'll pay. Don't worry about it. And Osama he takes the bag of clothes and he's like holding it, like you know really hugging it tightly to his chest for some reason. Older people will help us as they always do, but there might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then, you're on your own. Remember what to do, friends. Now tell me right out loud. What are you supposed to do when you see the flash? Terrorism is quite a specialist crime. Don't come and bother us because we will kill you. And uh, my attitude is, is that now's the time to be firm. For hundreds of thousands of years, really our brains were wired up to think of the enemy as things like saber-toothed tigers, um, predators. And so therefore the enemy really was not us. And it really was the case that we were often in a state of fear, huddling together around the campfire in the village, worrying about what lurked beyond. My name is Dr. Raj Prasoud, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist at the Maudsley Hospital in South London, and I'm Gresham Professor for Public Understanding of Psychiatry. Gates are things that go into fashion and come out of fashion, and I'm talking not months and years, I'm talking centuries. I'm Eddie Mick, Radio Gates Limited. <laughs> um, the gate's been around a long, long time. It certainly, I think, was invented before the wheel. You, know, you can imagine the caveman in his cave pulling the gate across and saying, right, we're a little bit more secure now because we've got something covering the hole in the cave. You know, I, who knows if he's hiding in some cave or not. Uh, we hadn't heard from him in a long time. They're taking me down into a cave. It's hidden behind some shrubbery and some sticks. 
So at first it doesn't really look like anything, and then they push aside this junk, and it's actually quite well lit. There's actually running electricity in this cave, and it just goes deep, 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 deep down into the ground, into this mountainside. And uh, I can hear running water. The pathway widens up into just a huge room down there. There's just hundreds of these guys down there all these eyes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of eyes start to kind of just peer at me. And out of the throngs of people comes Bin Laden. He's smiling. And he actually surprisingly speaks pretty good English. He says, uh, what are you doing here? I say, well, I'm Seth. Uh, I'm from Chicago. And, uh, I don't really know what I'm doing here. In, in what people, some people call the postmodern context, where states tend to avoid having wars with each other, who is the enemy, or what is the enemy? And the art of the horror film in recent times has been about the idea that the enemy is within. And... One of the key defining moments in uh, the history of horror films was the famous film Psycho by Hitchcock. And this was about the idea that the things we take for granted actually are more sinister and are there eventually um, to bite us or uh, to destroy us. So mundane things like a motel became a very dangerous place to be. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel tucked away off the main highway and as you see, perfectly harmless looking when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. A place that we often feel entirely safe, the shower, where we are naked and most vulnerable became the scene of a great horror. Now, if we go back to 9-11, 9-11, people died in an office. An office is a mundane place. And the plane, an airplane, which is again a mundane object of modern technology, um, became the, the, the means of the delivery of destruction. I had a very vivid dream. On the morning of 9-11, it was actually election day in New York City. So I came to work extra early that day. It was a beautiful day, very clear. And I worked on the 27th floor of the municipal building, which is downtown. It was a regular morning ritual to kind of take a break, look out the window. But that particular morning at 8.47, I guess what it was when I was looking out, I saw the first plane hit the World Trade Center, which was my view from where I was sitting at my desk. But I don't think, I don't think I really understood the severity of the situation until I actually left the municipal building, which was a number of hours later. 
Somewhere within that week, the subject of dreams came up, and I had had one particularly vivid dream that all these tall buildings in downtown Manhattan sprouted wings, strangely short, stumpy, concrete wings, but almost with Mickey Mouse hands on them. You know, his gloved white hands and literally shot up off the ground as if to fly, like an airplane, like they become concrete airplanes, or, but, but bigger than an airplane, obviously, these huge structures. And not only did they sprout wings, take off in the air, but they also smashed quite ceremoniously into one another. And it was kind of that nowhere to run, nowhere to hide type of feeling. And that was kind of the main feeling of 9-11. It was like, where do you go to actually take cover? Really, this is something I had never thought of, that the buildings could turn on one another and crash into one another and attack one another. That you couldn't even trust a building. Come along with your remote control, press it. And what then happens is, you can see, it starts to turn and the gate opens. The, the idea of uh, wanting uh, this um, feeling of safety and security, I think it's deep in people's psyche at the moment. The police, for example, are saying to us, look, there's only so much that we can do. We can't, we can't protect you night and day, 24 hours. People must, must take their own measures to, to look after themselves. To obtain protection against the protection, and as far as possible, the government's been giving out mixed psychological messages. What one has been that we can protect you, you should carry on and live your lives as normal. The enemy wins if you start changing the way you live your life. Uh, but then on top of all that is the idea that we need to be vigilant. This is a very, very powerful enemy, and you need to allow us to launch preemptive strikes against other countries and take away people's civil liberties and start wars, etc., etc. If you can't block up the windows from the outside, pieces of heavy furniture should be positioned in front of the window and then packed with earth or books. Last week, I dreamt I was on the safari in Kenya with um, a busload of elderly tourists, and uh, they were all there uh, just to see the animals. Um, but the tour guide thought that we would be a little bit bored, so he set us a little task, which was to um, find Osama bin Laden um, and to hunt him down and destroy him. I'm put in a bit of a quandary because um, it seems I'm a lawyer, and one of my clients is... Osama bin Laden, and um, client confidentiality means I can't reveal where he is, so I have to keep very quiet, and 
perhaps do a bit of misdirection when people start getting close to the truth about where he is. So we're driving along in the bus um, and pretty much ignoring the animals and focusing on our new task. And um, as a treat, the tour guide decides to take us to Mount Everest. It turns out, fortunately, that Mount Everest is kept in a small um, tribesman's hut on, on the Masai Mara. So we get out of the bus and uh, go up and he opens the door. Inside, there's just a huge mountain inside this little room. So um, we're all scrabbling around at the bottom of Mount Everest um, in the snow. And I happen to remember that Osama was telling me um, only that day how he'd been to Mount Everest as well. And I blurt it out and um, the game is up. Everyone realises that Osama must be there too. And so they all start hunting around and checking under rocks and they find him and they pull him out and they beat him to death. Which made me feel uh, very guilty because I'd betrayed him. If I, if I sleep somewhere, you know, honestly, this is true. If I visit anybody and I've got friends who, um, you know, haven't got gates and we stay with them, or if I stay in a hotel somewhere or wherever, and there's no perimeter, it's very, very strange. You know, you get in the bed, you, you read, and you, you, you can't go to sleep, and you think, hmm, I wish I was at home with the gates closed. I stopped at um, last week at a, uh, not a, a premier type place, you know, a motel. And uh, you, all the cars are in the car park outside, and all the things there. And you, it's amazing. You, you do feel, for some reason, a little more exposed. You know, when you when you uh, sleep in a property without a boundary. Um, he's the ultimate parasite, who found weakness, exploited it, and. Um, met his match. I had a dream that I owned a sandwich shop and one of the workers who worked for me there in the sandwich shop was Osama bin Laden. And he was he's a very bad worker. I mean he would he would show up late for work or not show up at all and not call in and you know People warned me not to fire him because he was a dangerous person, but I just, I couldn't afford to have this kind of worker in my sandwich shop. And so I fired him. People started whispering to me, you know, the word around town was that he was, he was pretty mad and he was bent on revenge. He was going to get me back. So one day I was, I was riding down the street on my bicycle and uh, it's very quiet and deserted and coming from the other direction I see Osama bin Laden he's riding the, the rustiest, creakiest, squeakiest piece of junk bicycle that you've ever seen and he stops about 20 paces from me and I stop and it's quiet and we're staring at each other shopkeepers shuttering their shops and mothers bringing their children indoors and he's, he says to me, your days remaining on this earth are strictly numbered. And then he just rides off, creaking and squeaking the whole way.
I don't know where he is. Nor do I, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. And let me be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm more worried about making sure that our soldiers are well supplied, that the strategy is clear, that the coalition is strong. The traditional Freudian view of what um, dreams and nightmares were about, there was something very, very dark and frightening that lay in our unconscious. But it was important that our brains and minds didn't reveal what that was to us. So if we look at the dreams of uh, Osama bin Laden, the argument would be that the dream is an attempt to transform something very dark and dangerous into something mundane and everyday in an attempt to try and live with this terrible fear. So at one point during my time with bin Laden in this dream, he takes me into uh, a screening room. It's got red carpeting and the curtains on the wall, red velvet, very comfortable seats. And actually, uh, one of his people even offers me some popcorn. And uh, bin Laden says, I'm going to put on a film. It's a whole movie from my childhood, my teenage years, actually. He sits down next to me, smiles at me as the film's starting. And it uh, it mostly is in his kind of teenage years, like, you know, formulative years. And he's wearing kind of uh, Western-style clothes, you know, like uh, nice white cotton pants, penny loafers. He doesn't have a turban on. He doesn't look like a religious man. He kind of looks like a hippie you'd see out in California on, like, the Venice boardwalk. And he's got a nice red sports car. He's got women in the car. He's listening to rock and roll. Uh, so it's just kind of a montage of all these things, you know? He's cutting glasses. He's sleeping late. He's, he doesn't care. He's got his own ideas and his own ideals, and he's got his money. And uh, yeah, he's just looking for a different way. The gates aren't actually high security. What they are, during the morning, anybody comes to deliver anything, they can press a button, the gates will open, and in they'll come. Or the ladies come from next door for the coffee morning. What you're basically doing is just presenting a pair of closed gates to the outside world, as opposed to being wide open, as a lot of people are at the moment. Because often a gate is a statement. People often like individual symbols or motifs put into gates. We... We've done one recently for a pigeon fancier who wanted a pigeon in the gate. I remember some years back we did um, a football physiotherapist who wanted a copy of a pair of boots hanging on the gates. You know, the little motifs and logos that people like on gates. So a gate is quite a, you know, it's, it's a profound thing really. It needs some thinking about. And it does change completely the mentality of the people who live within the house. You know, when you go to bed at nights, you know that the gates are closed, you know that you know, you've got that little bit of um, distance between you and where any potential intruder might be. You know, you've kept them on the pavement rather than, you know, getting into the garden or go round the going round the back sort of thing.
obtain protection, you should now select and fortify a room in which to shelter. My nightmares is about the idea of the mob, the crowd, not thinking and following a, an ideology without analyzing it and thinking it through carefully and um, scapegoating. My worry isn't about the enemy so much, it's about us and what is it about us that makes us think we have enemies? What have we done that might have created enemies? So I'm, I'm worried about the enemy within us and not worried about them. It's late at night and I'm coming home on the G-train. It's probably two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, just me and another person. And I'm kind of checking him out and he's this hipster type guy and he's wearing um, like a corduroy blazer and a newsy hat and some kind of jeans splattered with paint and... and um, you know, I'm looking at him and he looks really familiar, you know, kind of strangely attractive. And suddenly our eyes lock and I realize it's Osama bin Laden. And I'm completely terrified, um, frozen with fear. And, you know, he's not, he's not reading anything. He's just, you know, sort of knowingly staring at me. And um, pure terror runs through me. But, you know, I don't, I don't want him to know that I know it's him. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure if he knows that I know anyway without me letting him know that I know. You know, just sort of like all of the various responses raised through my head. Like, do I get off the train now, even though it's not my stop? Um, do I smile at him? Do I get off and tell somebody? Um, or do I just play it cool? And he continues to stare at me, and I don't want to look away quickly, but I also don't want to continue to stare at him. Um, so I just sort of casually take my eyes away. He doesn't do anything. He just, just sits there and he kind of smiles at me. And then the train comes to a stop. The doors open. I walk out and then I turn around and I look through the window and he's still staring. And then the train pulls out of the station and he follows me through each pane of glass in the train. So we, you know, sort of watch each other all the way out and then he's gone and I'm in the middle of nowhere nowhere near home you should always give shelter to anyone who is caught in the open near your house when the warning sounds they may have no other protection from the attack if you are visiting take cover wherever you are unless you can get home in four or five minutes then take cover in your fallout room or shelter 
suddenly there's a shift in the dream and I'm at home and doing something on my computer and I'm alone and I remember that I have to check out a website that Asama told me to check out and so I go into this website and, and as I open it my, my computer bursts into flames and I run out and grab a bucket of water and come in and throw it on my computer in my computer tower that's burning and, and uh, after I do that Osama bin Laden comes into the room and we have a discussion and I remember it being some type of, of discussion about technology and art and their influences on each other and uh, Osama was, was quite eloquent in the dream although I don't remember at all what he was saying but I remember thinking that he was you know a really thoughtful thoughtful guy and after we talk for a while I'm I'm want to try on my sweater from Kmart and well it seems like the sleeves are too short because my arms are really sticking out really long out of the sleeves and and I you know show Osama and he tells me that the problem is that my arms are too long and he says that all Americans have long arms that that that's really one of the big problems in the world and you know almost it's 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 right before he was actually you know winking at me you know he knew that I would understand what he was what he was getting at Before you went there, there was nothing, right? There was a hole in the hedge, or there was uh, just nothing. And more to the point, inside that dwelling, there were probably some insecure people. When you're finished, and you've done your job properly, there's a magnificent uh, frontage, but more to the point, there's some happy people who live in that house. And when I drive by it now with my wife and family or whatever, I think, oh, that's nice, I've done that. And you do get a huge, huge amount of satisfaction from it. It's like a builder when he's built a house, he drives by it, he looks like, oh, I built that. Well, I'm the same with the electric gate installations. Like, you know, I look at it and I think, yeah, that's a good one, that is. You're just adding that something that uh, was probably missing, I think, in some way. <laughs> Eddie's a gate. So the film has ended now, and he's saying, Seth, you, know, you have to go back now. So we shake hands, and, uh, you know, uh, he's got a big hand. It kind of envelopes mine, almost like basketball player hands, you know. And then he, he walks away. I look back, and I see him. I see him walking down the shaft alone. And so then I'm on my way. 